0: Thanks for all the encouragement. I need it. I feel it. I'm ready. Thank you. So, before we get started, just a little bit of housekeeping. We have quite a few people that have either come back from holiday, too many to name. So, abroad, welcome back to all of you who just came back from holiday. And also, welcome back to Biddy, who went to be with her husband. Welcome back. It's good to have you back here. And and your son comes the 30th of January. And he, he's a teen disciple, and he'll be in the teen ministry. Is that correct? So that'll be awesome. We'll have Biddy's son here soon. Also visiting from our sister church in California. And also dating our brother Peter. We have Callie. If you could go ahead and stand up. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you here this morning. And Sulu's little sister, Zanale, you know that name fairly well. She's here as well. Good to have you. Also visiting from, I feel like, the starting lineup in the sports. And now, uh, but we also have somebody from our family of churches in Las Vegas. His name is Robert, so he's, uh, he's back there as well. So hello, Robert. Biddy, Robert, Callie, welcome back to everybody. And also, just recently moved from Wellington, we have Hannah. Go ahead and stand, Just, just so we can see you, Hannah, just so we can see you. She lives in Auckland. She lives out west, where biblically, that's where people go to be with the Lord. They don't go east. So, no, it, it's, that's just what the Bible says, Alberto. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to start anything. God loves everybody. Jesus loves the little children, even when they take their parents down to to kids' kingdom and all that kind of stuff. So we also want to say hello to Wellington, Radon and Rachel. Say a big hello to them. So this this midweek, this Wednesday, we'll talk more specifically about the church planting in Wellington and the plans this year for people to go down periodically and visit and encourage them. So make sure you're there this midweek for that. That's going to be awesome. And uh, is Bora here? Bora, I'm wearing those socks you gave. Let, let me show you the socks that Bora gave me. These things are awesome. Look at these things. Look at those. And 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 on the bottom it says David is confident, friendly, and something else. It's probably awesome or something. <laughs> But those socks are awesome, so I want to show those off. And thank you for that. And lastly, just to keep us informed uh, a little bit globally about what's happening in our churches, here's a here's a 3 minute 46 second video to keep us updated about what's going on all across the globe. And take it away, video.
1: As Takes a look backward and a look forward at all that God is doing. We have a lot to be thankful for. Ten years ago, we were a of 500. Today, we have 700. In 2010, we had 93,000 members. Today, we have 113,000 members. And we're in 147 different nations. God is absolutely at work. Unity was on display at our World Summit with our delegates at our 16 Mission Society. Love has been on display as we've supported multiple worldwide and volunteer projects around the world. Faith has been on display as disciples packed up and moved and started 120 new churches on six continents. And courage is on display as young people are entering the ministry in ever-growing numbers. And good news keeps pouring in from everywhere. Very excited to be in Eastern Europe. There's 21 countries there, and uh, we have more than 3,000 brothers and sisters. Very excited about the Kia Church, where we just appointed an eldership and an church, the new need of angels. This in the Kong Church costs their 2,000 members line, and we're having a steady growth. God is pleased to have the sight to the church, the church house, and, uh, in Taiwan and in the China area. Today, has spent 2019 visiting the churches that we planted in two days. We've been strengthening and encouraging that. so many faithful disciples, so excited to realize they're part of something that is worldwide, that has a vision, and a story. We helped plant the Joseph Church in 1992 with really young Christians, and now that church has grown so well and has become so happy. In the last five years, they sent an evangelist in women's ministry to strengthen the church in St. Petersburg. I've been excited over the summer to really walk with the young single men Sharing our faith a lot in the last several weeks. It's been great because I've had a whole bunch of new visitors myself after a long time. Some of those are studying the Bible now. We saw 26 students coming from across West Africa and in Central Africa. Seeing coming was so dreams. And to see that we're um, going to graduate to share students. And to into different nations, it was very happy. Along with disciples today, we will be recording new church plantings as they take place around the world. We are excited to provide the official counter as the churches in our movement grows from 700 to 1,000 worldwide. Currently, there are 47 countries around the world without an international church cross. So Kyoto is also creating a countdown as we send new churches to the remaining countries. Perfectly, in the next decade, our counter will hit zero. Today, more than ever, we need people to use their gifts, reach out, and impact their communities in all the ways that the church does. We need people to train out in the ministry, form teams, to plant churches, or move into churches that need help. We need people who will learn a new language and move anywhere the need arises. We need singles and couples to plant Bible talks in new areas of our cities. We need 50 to dream big, and reach out in our own nations and beyond. And of course... Happy new decade. We'll
0: see in Orlando and not be There you go, that's what's going on around the world with some special sound effects as well. Awesome. So today we're talking about Genesis twenty-one, and in in some ways, when you deal with humanity, what you get is similar to a lucky dip. And when you put your hand in the bag, you never know. It's kind of a random gift is what you're going to get. And so some days life is awesome. You're faithful and you're raising your arms in victory. And some days life throws you a curveball and your arm is in a sling. Hey, John, thank you for following my lead, bro. I really appreciate your your following. He's got his arm in a sling off a bike accident as well. God be with you and and your wife as she's shaking her head. We're not young anymore. But that's the idea, though, with humanity. Sometimes we're really faithful and we believe God can do things. And sometimes we just are very uncertain and we doubt that anything could happen. Sometimes we're actually filled with joy at what God is doing. And other times we see jealousy come out in our hearts as other people are doing better. And I think we see the mixture of love and hatred as well. It's really cool to see the Kiwi firefighters go over to help battle the fires in Australia. That's an act of love. People really helping and embracing when humanity is in need. And on the other end of of the spectrum, you can see the hatred in the Middle East when two nations are bullying each other because they hate each other and almost war is breaking out. And so on any given day, we are a mixed bag of unreliability. We're faithful. We're doubting. We're joyful. We're jealous. We love. We hate. And you never know what you're going to get. And so maybe... The conclusion is, we look at that and we say, there's no hope. Let's just be disillusioned and discouraged because we're so unreliable. Or maybe, as this passage will point us to this morning, maybe the backdrop of humanity is meant to make us look to God, who is extremely dependable and extremely gracious with us. And to our text we turn in Genesis chapter 21. As we turn there, I'll say a prayer and then we'll dive in to our story this morning. Father, we are we are so grateful that against that backdrop of love and hate and jealousy and joy and pain and everything in between, God that you stand alone as the supreme being that is dependable, gracious and loving. And we pray that as we read this text this morning, Father, that we really see clearly who you are in a more meaningful way, and that we can walk out of here in response to that by following your son Jesus more closely, and also calling other people to do the exact same. We pray this in his name, amen. Let's start reading, if you have a Bible, in Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 1, and we'll read the first section this morning. Now... The Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. Which is actually what Isaac means in Hebrew. He laughs. And everyone who hears about this, will Isaac with me, basically, will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. And if you remember the promises for Abraham to become a great nation, but it happens through Isaac. And as the passage continues early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Egypt is her homeland. So this whole context, Genesis chapter 21, it's like, finally, Isaac is born. It's first predicted around Genesis 15 or chapter 16, and Abraham and Sarah are waiting and waiting for this boy "...who will be a blessing to all nations." It's repeated over and over in these chapters. And so in Genesis chapter 21, finally it comes. Finally God has made good on His promise. And so this morning I want to look at just one point. And that point is that God is dependable and gracious. He's both dependable and gracious. And that's, that's the driving aspect of this chapter. Almost in a redundant way, the author begins chapter 21 by saying, as he had said, referring to God. It says it again in verse 1. He did what he had promised. In verse 3, God had promised him. And so this is how the whole story starts. God did what he said. He did what he promised. He made good. On his delivery, and so in this we see all of these different characters reacting in a very different way. Look at Sarah, for instance, when she first hears about the joy attached to having this son, she, she's like, "Are you kidding me? Who knew? Who would have thought? Who would, in their right mind, would have ever predicted I would have a child?" She's in her nineties, and her husband is a hundred. And she says, God has brought me laughter. Because this is, this is laughable. This Even with modern technology today, they say with all these assisted technological reproductive help, you can't even be f- past 55 years old and have a child. Even with all this technology. And here they are in their 90s having a child. And over and over, this is the idea. Like, if this were to be announced today... We would think it's incredible. This is a big deal. The oldest couple in our fellowship is in their seventies, and if they made if they stood up today <laughs> and they made an announcement, and they said, "We're having a baby!" <laughs> yeah, we would be like what? And, and imagine in 20 more years, if they were to say it again, we had this, this news, they would have, Abraham and Sarah would have gone to all the tents in their village and said, we're having it. And they'd be like, no way is that happening. And imagine for the next year, Sarah in her nineties thinking, Oh, she probably woke up with the thought like, there's no way this is going to happen. And maybe the discussion with her and her husband, Abraham, and like, and for, for about a year, this is, and, and then they get pregnant, and then it's like, uh, we're in our old age, and how's it going to work, and how's it going to happen? And then, on the very same day, the following year, she gives birth To Isaac. Imagine the joy. It really happened. This is crazy. Imagine a year later if that same couple in our church said, "Eh, We're having, we had our baby. We'd be like, Let's throw a party. This is crazy. This never happens. Imagine the joy and excitement attached to that birth of her son Isaac. Three years later, that's the age that Isaac will be weaned and Abraham you know no more nappies no more you remember that day when you, you know, the last nappy that's such a glorious day huh Abhijit <laughs> oh it just started for you sorry <laughs> But they, so they wait, they have this big feast at, at his age 3 and then look what verse 10 says now this is the same Sarah three years earlier who's overflowing with joy now she's full of jealousy get rid of that slave woman she, he will never share in the inheritance of my son, Isaac. And, and by the way, this is not a polite request. Like, hey, can, can you please remove him from the feast? This is, it's used the same Hebrew language that God uses in the garden when he drives man out. After he drove the man out. That's Genesis 3.24. That's the same language Sarah uses. Drive him out of here. Get this kid out of here. I'm angry. Look at what's going on here. So, Ishmael is about 14 years old, and he's looking at this three year old son, and, and the verse says that he's mocking him. And, and as a result of all this, Sarah gets overwhelmed get rid of him. And that's what actually happens they drive them out from the family, from joy to jealousy, the mixture of human emotion. And then look, look at Ishmael. He's about 14. Now, before Isaac is born, you're the man. Everything of Abraham's supposedly would come to you as the heir. You're the next in line. You're the only child. And so everything, he, he's thinking, man, I have, Abraham has a lot of stuff. And so that's probably his mindset. But now when he hears this news, oh yeah, right, my parents are pregnant. That's never going to happen. They're very old. That's never going to happen. So he's still a bit secure. But now when the child is born... And he's grown up until he's about three years old. He's mocking him. And it's not like a brother mocks. You know, like, hey, man, your ears are big, bro. You're, 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 you look silly, or whatever brothers say to each other. Um, it's not that kind of mocking, all right? In Galatians four twenty nine, Paul uses the same story and says, "At that time, the son was born according to the flesh, persecuted the son born by the Spirit." He actually uses Hagar and Ishmael as a story in Galatians four. Ishmael's looking at this boy and saying, "Man." Uh, I'm supposed to be the one in line, not you. What are you doing? You little twerp, you little three-year-old punk. Who knows what he's saying? But he's persecuting him. And Sarah sees that. And so in the context of all this, now we see this hatred from Ishmael. And to cap it all off, like the saddest part of this story is the end of it when Hagar and Ishmael get sent off to wander in the desert. Now just put all these pieces together here. Imagine Abraham waking up. He gives some water to Hagar and Ishmael and says, you guys got to go. And they go to the desert. And when the water runs out, they both sit down to die. And this is just incredibly sad. The mom creates enough distance between her and her son where she can't really hear her son sobbing as he's dying in the desert. And that's the picture. This is like desperation. And so can can you just see all the range of human emotion in this passage? You got Sarah who's like, yes, we're having a baby. Get that son out of here. Ishmael, who's like, man, what are you doing? And then Hagar, Ishmael, who's so desperate against all of this emotion. The very passage starts with, as God had promised, as he had said, he did what he promised. God always dependable, reliable, gracious humanity. We swing up and down. We swing up and down, don't we? And... Abraham and Sarah put, put themselves into this position with Hagar. Now it's causing friction. If you remember a few chapters earlier, they come up with this plan. Sarah says, sleep with my slave servant because we're not having kids. I'm barren. So they do. And now all of this is kind of causing friction. And what does God do? He's gracious. He helps clean up their mess. That's the verse 18 says, you know, I know you guys took matters into your own hands, but I'm still going to make Ishmael a great nation. I'm still going to care for him and protect his mom. And he does as you read the story on. And so even though Hagar and Ishmael are separated from the blessing of Abraham, God still takes care of them. So he's incredibly gracious in this passage as well. And hopefully you can see a little bit of yourself. I know I, I experienced the range of emotion seen here in this passage. And I know it's in your heart as well. One day you're fired up. The next day you're firing bullets at other people. In your heart. And so we, we see all this. But it, it, it begins with God did what he said. He did what he promised. Because he's dependable. And he's gracious. I love thinking about... I loved watching this video over and over. This is a time-lapse of the sun rising and setting. And I watched it over and over, just kind of like meditating on it. What happens on a day-to-day basis? Because the the sun is such a, a constant and visible object in our lives. I mean, we see it every day for all of our life. And in, in in the past, ancient civilizations, they, they did the same thing. They saw the sun. They said, man, this, this thing is dependent. This thing is reliable. I'm going to worship that. You get all these sun cults and stuff like that. And, and sometimes ancient Israel would, would turn aside and start to worship the sun. Genesis says, though, the sun has a purpose. It's just to mark time. It's just a reliable marker of time. It rises and it sets. And what do we do as a result of that? We plan our days around that. Let's get up before the sunset. Make you sh- sure you do this before sundown. The season, start and finish. It's all kind of la- connected to the sun. Our calendars, our deadline, even directions. If you know where the sun is, you know where east is, you know where west is. It's so reliable. Yeah. It's so dependent. You better make hay while the sun shines. Like we have all these phrases attached to that because we know the sun is going to rise and the sun is going to set. It's such a dependent and reliable object. Now the idea, no human being wakes up and pushes a button that sets all this in motion. Nobody wakes up and looks at their smartphone and says, Sunrise app. Click and it starts going. That doesn't happen. Nobody, nobody's pulling a lever. Nobody behind the scene. This just happens automatically by the hand of God. And look, and if you cast that against the struggle of humanity, we're always striving and straining to be as dependable as something like that. Yet we fall drastically short. And the sun is this image of God's constant. Reliability. I love the psalmist says it in Psalm 19. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. It's always going to do what it's been created to do. Even when we look at nature... It points us to this conclusion God is dependable. God is reliable. And He's gracious. Nothing, everybody gets the Son, even the good and the bad. And so this passage is, is really making this point because that's how it all begins in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. So all that sounds nice in theory. But what does this mean when we, when we practice it in our lives? Well, one, one idea is it just means we need to be humble. Because God cleans up all of our messes. And I think sometimes we we, we forget that God has been cleaning up your mess, my mess, and all of our mess. And he does this pretty graciously. And sometimes we get more focused on other people's mess than the mess we're in and how God has graciously cleaned us up. Now in this passage, man, Abraham and, and, and Hagar had created quite a mess. With their life. And God is here graciously saying, I'll take care of this. I'll take care of this. I'll help you here. I'll help you here. Even though you created this scenario, I'll graciously help you I think that means we need to have a great sense of humility. Because God is always dependable. God is always reliable and gracious. We're not. So we need to be humble with each other. All of us have mess. And some of us are still cleaning up that mess. Yeah. If we're honest and so we got to be humble with one another. Another thing it means in our life and is we need to have a measured approach of God. Well one of the things that kind of gets me indignant is When people who don't really know the Bible or people who are against Christianity, they make these claims about God saying, "Uh, God is an angry God in the Old Testament and he's a loving God in the New Testament. And so they, they pick and choose a couple of episodes from the Old Testament and say, look, God is angry and he's on a war path and he's bloodthirsty. And they overlook the abundant illustrations of his grace, generosity, And care for people, for families, and for entire nations. And what these people do, what gets me indignant, is they're so ignorant. Because they just take a couple of instances. Look when God sends his people to war. Look what he says here. And they just use those and they tack on to to God that he's an angry, bloodthirsty God. But it's not a measured approach at all. I mean, he's caring for this situation. That they messed up. And God God always provides. God always is generous. And, and and if you read front to cover, if someone read the Bible from, from opening passage to the end, they, they would see, man, God takes care of a lot of mess. He's very gracious and he's very generous. And, and one of the things that I often even hear from atheists is, is that God and religion are the reason for so much war. Now, I want to tell you that that is a bold, arrogant lie. Yeah. And 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 the reason why that is is if you look at historical documents like there's one if you want to read it in your spare time called the Encyclopedia of Wars. It's a riveting read. Uh-huh. It covers all the wars from around 8000 BC till modern times. 2000 some wars roughly. And this is not from a guy who's a Christian, it's not from a guy that's an atheist, he's a historian. And when they mark up all the motives of these wars about 7% can be reduced to because of religion. 7% of all the wars. And so for someone to say God is the reason and religion is the reason for war, well, look at the facts. And don't ignore the facts. Yes, there has been war as a result of religion, but not the majority of war. That, That is just simply a lie. So when you hear that voice voiced from someone, say, well, what about the encyclopedia of wars? Now make sure you do a little bit of research yourself so you're not just kind of throwing out stuff like an expert. But, 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 but I tell you, it's, it, it's not a measured approach of God. It's not a measured approach of God. And, and another thing they'll say is that there's been so much killing in, in the name of religion. Now here's a, an even more interesting one. When you compare the body count... Of proclaimed atheists who, who say, I'm not Christian, I'm atheist. And when you take up and total the body count because of people who have been in power who are atheists, it's close to 100 million. And then when you tack on and what, what the atheists say is that when you, oh, what about the Inquisition? What about the Crusades? Now, if you do a generous body count of that, it's about 1 million, which by the way is, is really bad, okay? The Inquisition and the Crusades and the death toll there, that is inexcusable. There's nothing right about that. But when you just look historically at facts and you say like one hundred million versus one million, give me a break. People I mean atheists are they Hitler flat out atheist. So so don't let people criticize God with an unmeasured approach. Because you see him here in this passage, man, he's taking care of people even when they don't deserve it. And as we begin to reflect on communion here shortly, one thing is we need to look at Abraham. I mean, he's the example of somebody who always obeys God. And after after the party of Abraham's birth, what does he do? In verse 4, God says you need to circumcise your son. That's what he does in verse 4. He circumcises God-commanded. He's been told this a long time ago. When your boy is born, this is what you need to do. And he obeys. Well, to be honest, it's kind of easy when there's a party. Hey, it came true. God God made good on his promise. He delivered. We had a son. Of course I'll obey. When your relationships are all good, it's easy. Hey, man, life is good. It's easy to obey. When your marriage is harmonious, it's easy to obey. When the kids are obeying, man, it's easy to obey. Here am I, send me. When you, you, get the, you get the picture. When life is good, man, I love God, I'll give my time, I'll give my energy, here am I, send me. The moment life starts to turn, here am I, send somebody else. It's hard to obey when it's difficult. In verse 12 and 13, God says to Abraham, look, I know you're distressed about what's going on in your family. But listen to what Sarah says. I get it. I know it's going to be difficult. I know you're going to have to send your son away into the desert. And I know it's going to be hard on you. But, but do it. I'll, I'll take care of him. Now this, where it have, this is where the rubber meets the road. Because this, this, this is a difficult thing. But he wakes up the next morning, and he sends Hagar and Ishmael into the desert. So we see, hey, it's all good when there's a party, but when it becomes difficult, he's still obeying. That's really, really challenging. That's really, really challenging, because everybody loves the idea that Jesus loves the little children, and all the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. But then when you have to love your enemy, uh, that's a little bit different, because maybe you don't understand the whole context. But we can't pick and choose. Obedience is obedience. Everybody loves the truth that we're a spiritual family. This is awesome. I love our family. We get different cultures, different backgrounds, different views, different perspectives. But when you start to challenge my devotion to that family, that's a different different thing. But I love that we're a family. But don't challenge me on obeying the devotion to the family. You can't pick and choose this kind of stuff. I love the truth that God will bless me if, if I listen to his word. But what about when Jesus says, give up everything to follow me? No, I'm not, I, I'm not willing to do that. I love the aspect about the blessing, but not about the giving up of everything. You can't pick and choose this stuff. I love the idea that God takes care of the less fortunate. But what about those that look good, but need to hear the gospel, and it forces us to engage in the mission more? Well, we can't pick and choose these things. We can't do it when our seasons of life are good. Abraham obeys constantly from, the, from here on. Go sacrifice your son. He does it. This is a challenging thing. But it's a response to the idea of being God dependable and gracious. Our lives ought to be drastically different. Because God always turns up. Always provides. Always takes care of us. We don't. Live our Christian lives to earn that. We live because He is dependable and He is gracious and He is reliable. As we conclude and are about to take communion as a spiritual family this morning, I want us to all really leave here understanding very clear the God we deal with is not like Lucky Dip. It's not like some days you get an angry God, some days you get a caring God. What is He going to be like today? He's always dependable. He's always generous. And He always provides. Just like the sun will set today and it will rise tomorrow morning. He is dependable and gracious. Let us become a church who lives in response to that. By being humble and letting our faith believe that God always delivers. And making sure our obedience is the same. Let's pray as we take communion together. Father, as we look at this passage, and as we look at the whole story of the Bible, I, I just feel wildly grateful that, that you, a supreme being, would entertain a being like me, like us, and all our limits, and all of our flaws, and, and still, for thousands of years, deal with us in some sense, despite our ups and downs, all the mistakes we make, and all of the situations that we get stuck in, that you have to come and get us out of, God. So we just want to come to you and say thank you for being so gracious with us. And of course, that's that's mainly illustrated when you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross, though we did not deserve it. And I pray that that, that is the moment, that's the story, that's the person that we look to. We don't look to one another other as an expectation, but that we look to Jesus, and we can follow Him, and as a response, we can, be, we can be obedient, we can be humble, and that we can teach other people this lifestyle of the gospel as well. We're thankful for all that you've done for us, and we pray that we can live a life worthy of this calling. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.